is it possible that the Holy Spirit could be welcomed? Think about here, our presence. Could the Holy Spirit be welcome here in the presence of murderers and gluttons and adulterers and idolaters? Surely he couldn't feel welcome by us. The message of Galatians is that the Holy Spirit is not only welcomed by us, but that he welcomes himself as he leads us. That if we live by the Spirit, we will be in step with the Spirit. We will be walking with God. We will be fellowshipping with God. I still think, how is that possible? <laughs> how is it possible that we could walk with God? Like, how could because he loves us. How can we thieves, greedy and selfish, have fellowship with God? Is it by following the letter of the law so as to please him? No. No, it's by trusting in the promise of a Savior. A promise made to Abraham long ago that all the nations would be blessed through him. That all the nations would be blessed through Abraham's lineage. That someday the Christ would come as his descendant to make salvation available. Not only to the Jews, but also to the Gentiles. Jesus came fully God and fully man and lived each second of his life in complete perfection. There were no narrow misses. <laughs> it was complete perfection by his own will by Jesus's own will he laid his life down as a sacrifice for many for the joy set before him he took he took your sin Christian he took your sin on himself by his own will so that you could enjoy his righteousness before the father he wanted, he wanted you to enjoy his righteousness. And so he gave himself for you. Now, someday, by his power, those who trust him for salvation will also rise again. And someday we will have perfect union. Right now, that union is not perfect, right? In this life, before, before we rise again, our union isn't perfect. But someday that union will be perfect and we'll have complete, whole, perfect fellowship with him again someday. And God has given this mission of extending that fellowship, the mission he came for. Jesus came, why? To seek and to save the lost. He's extended that mission to us. It is now that we get to participate in his mission of extending his perfect fellowship to those who are lost. God has given that mission to us to proclaim this good news until he returns. This promise of blessing all nations, it led to a commission that the promise be made known to all nations so that someday all nations may worship at the throne of God. Revelation chapter 7 says this in verses 9 and 10. It says, John Seeing the end times, God was revealing to him this revelation. He says this, After this, I looked, and behold, man, what a, what a beautiful image we're about to read here. Behold, a great multitude that no one could number, maybe like the sand on the seashore, maybe like the stars in the sky, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, 
Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. This day is coming. This isn't fictional. This isn't imaginary. This is true. The day is coming when people from every nation, tribe, and tongue proclaim the salvation of our God. And we get to be a part of taking that message to the nations. We get to be a part of saying, I want every tribe, every tongue, every person to know Christ, to go with that message. Because in the end, there will be those who are blessed by faith and there will be those cursed by the law. That is the message of the text that we're going to see today. The law is a curse, but faith is a blessing. The blessed day where we gather around the throne crying out with our loud voices, salvation belongs to our God. And we say it because we've experienced, we we know the salvation. Faith is a blessing. But there will be those far from Christ with their knees bowed. We're going to be in Galatians 3.10. Micah has already prepped us there. He's already read it for us, with us. Let's, let's again look at that text together. Galatians 3.10. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. In verses 10 through 12, we really see this being rejected by a curse. That our position before God is a position of being cursed under the law. Before Christ, that we are cursed under the law. That feels uncomfortable to say. (laughs) Honestly, as I'm saying that out loud, it's like, what? Like, no one likes this. (laughs) No one likes this part. You mean that we're we're cursed under the law before God? Yeah, that's the starting point. (laughs) That's where we start, is that sin is a problem. It's not a small problem. It's a massive problem. It's not one where it's like, oh yeah, there's a little bit going on. It's a curse. Sin is a curse. And the law identifies that curse. We are rejected by a curse. We bring it on ourselves. I mean, this curse is one that we have brought on ourselves. The curse of the law brings rejection on us. And really, think about this, the curse is the rejection. Really, rejection is the curse. Generally, we know that a curse is, let's define curse as we talk about curse. Generally, we know that a curse is a promise of harm or trouble. We see that even from the fall, that the snake would dwell in the dirt. Here's Jesus, uh, here's God uh, cursing the snake because of sin. Sin is a curse and it brings curses. So the curse was that the snake would dwell in the dirt. We see in Genesis chapter three that the woman would suffer to give life through childbirth, the man would suffer to sustain life through raising food from hard and thorny grounds. And we see, too, that the living would die. The curse of sin is really that the living will die. The people. And Paul says that in verse 10, all who rely on work are under a curse. What's, it's this curse. It's the curse of sin. It's this promise of harm or trouble. Sin is this harm and trouble. Death is this harm and trouble. And all who rely on work are under a curse. Notice this, that it's not the work that curses in verse 10. If you look at that, if you look at the text, it's not the curse, I mean, it's not the work that curses. It's, it's the reliance on the law for justification. 
It's the reliance on the work. It's trusting in your goodness to stand innocent before God. It's trusting in your own power to either be greater than God if you're rejecting God. (laughs) If you reject God, you are claiming your authority over him. Or it's your power to say, I'm good enough to gain innocent standing before God. So relying on the law is is rejecting God. But But the law condemns it doesn't justify we can't stand with the law before god and say i'm good enough (laughs) it's not what the law does the law doesn't stand and justify us so it's a curse those who stand with the law before god are cursed under the weight of the law that through the law we will never be perfect enough we will never stand innocent we will never be justified before god and look at the passage paul quotes here Paul quotes a lot of passages here. He's trying to establish, hey, look, guys, the Jewish faith establishes that faith is the way. When we're looking at the context of all of Galatians, the book is saying the Holy Spirit comes to you through faith. It's not through works of the law that you are saved. And so here he's he's saying the, the Judaizers, these false teachers who are trying to put you underneath the weight of the law, he's coming back to the text they would have recognized. He said, look, even by your own text, we see faith. So Deuteronomy 27, 26 is what he quotes here. Cursed be anyone who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them, and all the people shall say amen. If you go to Deuteronomy 27, there's like a plethora of curses there. <laughs> it's not the only one. If you go to Deuteronomy 28, it reaffirms the curse of, trying to st- of, of breaking the law. That if you obey the law, you're blessed. If you disobey it, you are cursed. Cursed be anyone who has not confirmed the words of this law by doing them. And, and the people agreed. It wasn't a secret. The punchline here from Galatians 3, though, in verse 10, 11, and 12, is that no one can keep the law perfectly. So if you don't keep the law, then you're going to be cursed. Well, guess what? <laughs> Everyone breaks the law. No one keeps it. So everyone's cursed under the law. As it is written, no one is righteous. No, not one. If someone could keep the law perfectly, then they could escape the curse. But it's just not possible. Because the law doesn't just need to be followed physically. The law must be followed spiritually too. Do you remember the rich young ruler? It's a story in the book of Matthew in the gospel where, where Jesus has a, a young ruler come up to him, a lot of wealth, and he says, Jesus, how can I be saved? And Jesus gives him a few, re- Jesus references the law, which if you're reading the story, you might think that's strange. <laughs> like, why would Jesus reference doing things to be saved? Like, shouldn't Jesus say, well, believe in me and you'll be saved? But check out what Jesus is doing. He references the law, even though it seems a little weird. Jesus is showing this guy who thought he was keeping the law that he wasn't. The rich young ruler thought, I was doing all the right things to be saved. Look at my rule following. And Jesus says, it's not the rules that that you're missing out on. It's the heart of the rules. That you don't love the rule giver. You You don't love the law giver. You love the law. This rich young ruler was checking the boxes, but he still loved his money more than Jesus. He hadn't given himself in faith to Christ. He hadn't submitted to Christ, he, had, he was a slave to his wealth. So we can find people who seem like they're doing the right things to fulfill the law. Maybe it looks like they're doing them perfectly, but in our hearts, we will never do them perfectly. And that's, that's displayed by the fact that I actually don't know anyone. <laughs> I don't know anyone who looks like they're doing all of the physical things perfectly. So if, you, if I can't even find someone who's doing the physical things perfectly, then if we could, it would be certain that they're not doing the spiritually, spiritual things perfectly. The spiritual obedience to the law is obeying in submission to God. It is possible to obey the law in a merely physical way or a form of obedience. That's how Jesus describes it in Matthew 23. Matthew 23, verses 27 and 28. Jesus is talking to the scribes and Pharisees, and he's saying, woe are you, in Matthew 23. You see, he's he's kind of saying, like, destruction is coming on you. (laughs) 
and he's describing them and he's telling them what happens. In Matthew 23, verses 27 and 28, he says this, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and, are, and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Man, Jesus knows me. I think he got my name wrong here. <laughs> he says scribes and Pharisees, but I'm, I'm sure that should say Mark Navy. <laughs> no, he didn't get it wrong. But doesn't he know us? Isn't it easy to be whitewashed tombs where the appearance is right, where there's a physical obedience of the law, and we're satisfied in that? But how's your heart? My, my great concern for you, Provision Church, dear brothers and sisters, my great con- concern for you as a part of the church in the American South, and honestly, globally, but my great concern for you is that you might be whitewashed tombs. Because how could I know? I can't. I can't judge the inside. I don't know the heart, but God knows. He looks at the inner man. He looks at the inner person. He knows exactly what's on the inside of you. So here's my question to you. How's your heart? (laughs) I don't want us to appear righteous, but have our hearts full of lawlessness. We've worked, I think, so hard to keep up our appearances, but appearances cannot save. How is your spiritual obedience? How is your spiritual obedience? How is your heart? How are you obeying? It's one of the reasons why we've said it here before, and I want to keep saying it, that at Provision Church, we don't celebrate perfection. (laughs) Well, we do. We celebrate perfection in Christ, so I'll be careful I'll say that. But for us, we celebrate repentance. Like, sin doesn't surprise us. We know we're sinners. It's baked in. But what's good, what we celebrate, isn't images of perfection. We celebrate righteousness, Yes. We celebrate the means that God gives us to righteousness, that we continue repenting. Today, Micah joked, it's Reformation Day, um, which I think is appropriate on Halloween uh, for it to also be Reformation Day. But 504 years ago, Martin Luther nailed on to the doors of a church in Wittenberg, 95 theses, and he said, look, here's things that the church is doing wrong. And if you read them, you're still kind of like, eh. <laughs> I mean, he was fighting against a really traditional church that hi- heightened their traditions above God's word. But his first point was that when God calls us to a life of repentance, he call, uh, when God calls us to repentance, he calls us to a life of repentance. It's not just this one-time thing that in following Christ, we're always repenting of our sin. We always need to confess our sin because he's always faithful to forgive. So if you're relying on your outward physical obedience for justification for God, I have words for you. <laughs> or better Paul does, or better God does. <laughs> No one is justified by the law. No one is justified by the law. You need to repent and turn to a Savior who loves you. You need to rest your salvation in His hands instead of your hands. No one is justified by the law. Look at verse 11. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. There's only one way to be justified before God, and that is faith. We are made righteous by faith. We see that in verses 11 and 12 very clearly. It's really throughout this whole book of the Bible, this whole letter. We are made righteous by faith. I want to make sure that we're on the same page with the word justified here. There will be a day of judgment for each of us. 
this is important for us Christians, is to believe that there will be a day of judgment for us. More and more for Christians, according to surveys, apparently we're stopping, we, we don't believe quite as much now in heaven and hell. I don't know how you can pick this up and claim its authority in your life and not. There will be a day of judgment. There is an afterlife. There is a life after this where we will either be with God forever or apart from God forever. So let's be on the same page. There will be a day of judgment for each of us when we will be judged innocent of sin and rewarded with eternal fellowship with God in heaven. That's the sheep, right? God's sheep will be judged innocent of sin or we will be judged guilty of sin and punished with eternal separation from God in hell. 2 Corinthians 5 says that we are going to appear before the judgment seat of Christ. It's simple. It might be uncomfortable, but it's simple. We're going we're gonna to appear before the judgment seat of Christ, and it's in front of this judgment seat that we will need to be justified. And there's really here Paul portraying opposing options to justification. These two defense methods. Some will plead from their own work. Others will plead from their faith in another's work. So Paul quotes from the prophet Habakkuk here. He says, the righteous shall live by faith. The judge has already told us how to be justified. Here in Galatians, but also in the Old Covenant, he was already pointing to how we could be justified. Not from our own righteousness, but by Christ's righteousness, by the righteousness of another, of Jesus Christ. The righteous shall live by faith. Isn't it, isn't it kind and generous and good that, that God didn't keep the secret to salvation secret? <laughs> like, it's not a secret. Here's how you can be justified, by faith. We've already got the answer. And if we try by works of the law, we will not be justified before Christ. If we try to say, look, God, I was good enough, we'll be found guilty because you are not good enough. But if we say, look, God, Jesus was good enough, you'll be found innocent through his righteousness. It's through the righteousness of Jesus that we can be justified, that we can stand innocent before God. Read verses 11 and 12 with me again. Now it is evident, no, no confusion, it's clear, it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith, but the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. It is evident from the very word of God through his prophets that that living under the law is a curse. It's evident. He's told us that. This is God's word. Even from Habakkuk, even from Moses, that living under the law is a curse. But then it's also evident that the blessing of justification only comes through faith. Because the law is not of faith, verse 12. Abraham was of faith, not the law. The promise was of faith, not the law. The blessing was of faith, not the law. The law was of work. The law was of correction and rebuke. As we'll, as we'll see soon, the law was of guardianship and saying, here's how you can be righteous once you have faith. The law wasn't provided for salvation. It was provided for protection. It was provided to point God's people to faith, not replace the faith of his people. Our problem isn't the law itself. It's our interaction with the law. One, we don't keep it. <laughs> we break it. It's an easy one. The law, whoever doesn't affirm it, whoever doesn't keep it is cursed, right? It's our interaction with the law that we don't keep it. Or that we idolize it. That we make the law about the law rather than making the law about the one it points us to. 
Paul reminds the Galatians from Leviticus. Again, he's pointing them back. Look, this isn't new. This has always been God's plan. The one who does them shall live by them. The one who does the law shall live by them. Leviticus 18, 4 and 5. You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I think the language here is really interesting as we continue through Galatians. You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. You shall walk in the law. You shall live by the law, by his statutes and his rules. The problem, as we've already established, (laughs) is that we cannot walk in the law perfectly. We always break it. We're, we're pretty creative <laughs> at finding ways to break the law. We cannot live by the law perfectly. We, we will always die to it. We will always die to the law. You cannot get enough right to earn God's love. You can't get enough right to avoid enough sin. You can't appear good enough before God because it's your heart that's broken. It's not a few things on the outside that you need to clean up to whitewash your tomb. It's your heart that's been messed up by sin. It's your heart that needs fixing. It's the content of your heart. And, and no law can fix your heart. No law is going to fix your heart. You need something greater than a law to raise your heart from the dead. You need something greater than the law to raise your heart from the dark tomb of its sin. This is the immense sweetness of Jesus. (laughs) That you couldn't do it. That your works couldn't do it. Your, Your heart was too broken. Your sin too ingrained. But Jesus did not leave us in this darkness. But for those who were in darkness, they have seen a great light. Look at verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. There was no way in the law. You see that in 10, 11, and 12? There was no way in the law. It's only by faith. Well, praise God. Here's an object for your faith. Here is the one who could save. Christ redeemed us. It's like this beautiful pivot here. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. We, church, are redeemed by a curse. We are redeemed by a curse. Verse 13 shows us the seriousness of our sin. We needed to be redeemed. When I think of redemption, I think of, I think of coupons, right? You redeem coupons. It's like the easiest first thing that comes to mind. I know some of y'all know about coupons. Some of y'all get paid to shop with your coupons. You got your books. I know. Your apps now. Coupons have gotten easy. If you, pro tip, if you don't have fast food apps on your phone and you eat fast food, you're wasting money, all right? Because it's like built-in coupons now. <laughs> But the way a coupon works, the way a coupon works is you turn it in and you redeem it for the value on that coupon, right? You get something that didn't belong to you by turning it in and getting it back from the person it belonged to, right? It, it's really, it gives you what once belonged to a company. So the company says, look, I will give you money back for purchasing this product. I will give you something for purchasing this product. You turn it in a, cu- a coupon and you redeem it. I think Christ turned in his life to redeem us. He said, look, I will give this so that you can be mine. What belonged to sin and darkness and death, I will give myself over in the place so that I can take you for myself, so that you can be mine. It's a redemption. He takes for himself what once belonged to sin. 
but he, he didn't do it with an app or a small piece of paper cut out from the mail. He did it with his own blood. He did it with his own blood. It's just so intriguing. God could have waited. He could have waited a few thousand years and he could have used an app on his phone and done everything there. He could have redeemed us however he wanted to. And he chose the cross. He chose the brutal death and the shedding of his blood. Why? Because Romans 5. It was evidence of his love for us. He proved his love for us. What a great love. What an immense sweetness. The cost was great. The cost of sin could not be compared to something we take on an app. The cost of sin needed the blood of King Jesus to be paid. Your sin is serious. Jesus redeemed you at great cost because your sin had a great cost. He didn't just physically obey. He didn't just physically get on a cross. He spiritually suffered for you as well. He became a curse for you. This is from, that's a quote from Deuteronomy 21. It's a symbolic, it's symbolic. Deuteronomy 21, and if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day, for a hanged man is cursed by God. It's amazing to consider that God inspired Deuteronomy 21 knowing he would someday inspire Galatians 3. He inspired Deuteronomy 21 knowing that his son would come and suffer on a cross and be hanged on a tree for you and me. It was never beyond the mind of Christ that he would suffer for our sins, that he would be the man of suffering, that he would experience being a curse that he would feel the weight of the curse of the law for you and me. And it had to be this way because your sin is costly. Because my sin is costly. Don't you love <laughs> to belong to a God with this type of sovereignty? In his sovereignty, he chose to have our salvation become a curse. That our salvation came through Christ, who became a curse for us. God himself, lovely in every way, perfect and without flaw, our redemption became a curse, lowered himself, accepted abuse on our behalf. He did this to, to serve as a reminder for us what our sin caused. One of the great lies of the enemy is that our sin is not a big deal. You know, there's a lot of people who reject Christ their whole life because they don't believe there's anything they need saving from. Your sin is a, our sin is a huge deal. <laughs> Maybe I'm saying that too much. I hope you're hearing that. He died in this type of way. He became a curse in this type of way to remind us of what our sin is, to remind us of the ugliness of sin, to remind us of the brutality of our sin. The cross then was not only a physical tragedy inflicted on the body for Christ, it was a spiritual sacrifice in every way. He accepted your sin onto himself. He became the curse for us. And the, the cross was clear image of the consequence of our sin. Cursed is everyone who hanged on a tree. Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. In that image, you should be reminded <laughs> that Jesus loved you. That Jesus loves you. That his love for you did not stop <laughs> in his brutal death physically and spiritually, but his love continues today and it, it will continue forever. 
that the weight of your sin was so deep, yet the love of your Savior was so great. I pray, church, that you would know the height and depth and the width and breadth of the love of our Savior, Jesus Christ. That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Part of how he proved his love to us was not only that he suffered so immensely at the cost and weight of our sin, but that when he rose from the dead, when he defeated death, when he defeated sin, when he claimed victory and he ascended into heaven, that he left us a helper. Let's go back to the text. Look at, look at verses 13 and 14 with me again. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. The story starts with us here, this text starts with us being rejected by this curse, that the curse is the rejection, that we, we, we are separated from God. But how beautiful that in the course of three or four verses here, we move from rejection to, to, to receiving the Spirit. That really, verse 14 is this picture of receiving the Spirit. The Holy Spirit inside of us is the blessing of the Spirit. In Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham. What is the blessing of Abraham coming to the Gentiles? It's receiving the promised spirit through faith. That we couldn't receive this promised spirit through the law. So really, the promised spirit was inaccessible to us through the law. So through faith, now this promised spirit is available to us. That we can receive the spirit. And yes, we await heaven with eagerness as our prize. But why is heaven our prize? <laughs> Why does it matter? Like, wh why are we excited for this future of an eternity with God? Because it perfects our fellowship with God. Heaven is a place where our fellowship with God is perfected. There's a lot of things to be excited about in heaven. But it's not primarily because we're going to be reunited, reunited with our loved ones. Yes, that's great. We should look forward to that. It's not primarily because we'll be walking on streets of gold and there'll be no more problems of finances or wealth. It's not primarily because we'll have no more pain or aches. It's not because you'll have unlimited Swiss rolls and fudge rounds without gaining weight. I don't think that's actually true, but I, I gotta preach to myself up here too. <laughs> primarily, heaven will be the most wonderful to us because we have perfected fellowship with our God. Have you considered that? Heaven will be precious and wonderful and good and will never get tiresome or old. It'll be new every morning because we will have fellowship with our God. Christian, this is our great treasure and joy. Fellowship with God is our great treasure and joy. Can I pinpoint your treasure and joy with you for a second? Is it fellowship with God? It is. It should be. That's the call of the Christian life, is that we might think, I know and enjoy and love and have a relationship with God himself. That is the great joy of my life. We need to be reminded. We need to redirect sometimes. Abiding with God, dwelling with God. Colossians 1.27 says that the hope of glory is Christ in you. It's that we might be with him in perfect union. The hope of heaven is union with God. Here Paul says, 
the blessing of Abraham is receiving the promised spirit through faith. What is the blessing? The great blessing, the great promise of Abraham was not a land of Canaan. It wasn't milk and honey flowing. It wasn't wealth and many lambs and servants. If you read back through Genesis, you would think that could possibly be what the Jews would have thought in Galatians, is that was the promise to Abraham. But no, the great promise, the great blessing of Abraham is receiving the Spirit through faith. The blessing is the Holy Spirit. The blessing is the Spirit because the Spirit is God with us. He is providing to us union with God because He is God. We have God who dwells in us. So in this life, we battle sin and wage war against the flesh, but we love the Holy Spirit because He enables that battle because he continually draws us, because he fights for us, because even though we make it imperfect in our sin, the Spirit provides fellowship to us. That fellowship is granted to us because of what Christ has done on the cross, and through faith, the Spirit comes and dwells with us. What a blessing, church. What a blessing. So we might have God with us, that God might dwell in us. So consider this. The goal of faith is fellowship with God. The goal of your faith is fellowship with God. I don't know, fellowship might feel like a little bit of like a, I don't know, a church word. Like where do we use fellowship a lot? I, I don't know. But I'm okay with that. Because I think we need some unique words that, that grasp some of what we're talking about here. Like, Yes, it's relationship, but what kind of relationship? It's a relationship where there is dwelling and abiding. There is relationship where there's consistent love and connection. Like Jesus is always loving you well, and so many times we are uh, complacent in our and, and passive, but we are passively rejecting Christ by, by denying that relationship. No, we should be people pursuing a fellowship because our faith gives us a fellowship with God. In His grace, in His unmerited favor to us, as a gift to us, He has said, you can enjoy me. And you can do that through faith in Jesus Christ who loved you enough to die for you. The goal of faith is fellowship with God and I really think it's a difficult teaching to accept. I think about the disciples saying to Jesus, this is, this is hard, Jesus. <laughs> I think this is hard. If I'm being honest, if I'm, if I'm opening up, I really think that I don't want that sometimes to be the goal of my faith. Like I've got trouble sometimes that I wish the goal of my faith could just be healing my sick friends. think we want the goal of faith sometimes to be financial security. I think sometimes we have the goal of faith just being comfort in this life. But the goal of faith is hard. The goal of faith is, is costly. It's not easy for us. I think sometimes the, the biblical call of faith means that we're going to lose friends and that we're going to lose health and that we're going to lose wealth. Because I think the biblical call to send ourselves is hard. Right? How much faith does it take to say, God, I'll go wherever you send me? I don't know. I, have we said that recently <laughs> to God? God, I'm open. God, show me how I can serve you. I'm not holding anything back. You send me. Sending ourselves into our workplace can be costly. Sending ourselves into the harvest in our neighborhood and into other countries and other counties, into our own neighborhoods, 
is costly. Doesn't mean we give up on the mission. Doesn't mean that we don't live sent. Doesn't mean that we hold back. We we go forward because church, we've got work to do. <laughs> we have a glorious Savior who is dwelling with us, who loves us enough to be with us, to fellowship with us now and promise a future of fellowship as well. So we we go, we send ourselves, church. do think that the difficulty of accepting the teaching that the goal of our faith is fellowship with God is a part of the power of, of equipping our families. That it's a blessing to start from a young age teaching what treasure is. It's a blessing from a young age to be able to say, let me show you the greatest thing that you can do with your life loving God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength and all your mind as loving others as yourself let me show you what that looks like it's such a great gift to future generations that we might equip our families with what it looks like to disciple our children and that's not just the work of mom and dad dads it's the work of grandparents it's the work of adopted grandparents <laughs> We have a lot of adopted grandparents in here who love on kids, grandkids that are not theirs, and love them with a passion. It's the work of single adults. It's the work of college students and middle schoolers. It's the work of all of us to equip our families well, to come alongside of each other and love each other well. What a great gift you can give your family by investing in them spiritually to help them see the great goal of faith is fellowship with God. Paul was correcting a church who was weak in their faith, whose discipleship had been easily turned because they were immature. Families, dads, moms, everyone in the building. <laughs> Let's disciple well, even in our families. And considering the goal of faith being fellowship with God and considering that we can't do that on our own but that we need the spirit that we need help then the only way we can really enjoy fellowship with God and hope for hope for that for others hope that others might fellowship with God and enjoy his presence I really believe that believe that will only happen if we're praying like crazy I wonder how our prayer life reflects our faith. If we're walking in faith, what does, that, what does that say? How does our prayer life, what does it say about that? If we believe that the Holy Spirit is the blessing of Abraham to the Gentiles, <laughs> if it's God's promise to us that it's, that it's really fellowship with God himself, that the Holy Spirit lives in us, I wonder what our prayer life says about that how it reflects the spirit inside of us who is in perfect fellowship with the Father and the Son. Do we enjoy the gift of prayer that the Spirit gives us? Do you know why your prayers are effective? <laughs> because Jesus has led the way, because the Spirit and Christ are interceding for you. So I say, and I believe we find this in the Word, pray like crazy for childlike faith for yourself and your neighbors and the nations. Pray like crazy for God to use you in the mission field, in the harvest. Pray like crazy for revival to come in our time. Pray like crazy for God to be your greatest treasure and for heaven to be your true home. There are some here today, some watching online maybe, that are still rejecting God. You have spurned his generous offer of grace and mercy, and you've embraced the worthless things of this world. Turn to Christ. Turn to Christ while there is still time. 
Tell him that you believe in his life and death and resurrection for your justification. He is good. He is worthy of your fellowship for eternity. I, I imagine that there are some here today who are relying on their works for justification. It's tricky. I think we can say relying on our works for justification. Well, you know, that's not me. We might think, how, who is someone who relies on their work for justification? What does it look like? Traditions? Does it look like? And we might be able to look at generations above us or below us and the cues, and we might be able to see friends. None of us like to admit our blind spots. I want to encourage you to open yourself up and ask the Spirit to seek you out, to expose your sins and to expose where you might be relying on your work rather than on faith. It's time. It's time to rely on Jesus instead. The only way to enjoy the rest of Jesus Christ as he calls the burdened and heavy laden to come and enjoy rest with him, the only way to do that is to lay down the weariness and burdens of trying to earn your righteousness. It has to be earned for you. And it has been through the work of Jesus Christ. I'd love to pray with you or, or talk with you more about this. And we're about to sing again about our King who has done this, who has become the curse for us. And as we, as we sing and worship together, I, I'm gonna be in the back and I would love to talk with you. If you're not sure, if you've got questions, come, come talk with me. Be behind, between those big double doors back there. Or maybe just whisper to your neighbor. Whisper to the person you're sitting with. Maybe you came with someone this morning and they can talk with you through this. Every believer is equipped to point you to Christ. Let me pray for you. And then be courageous and talk through this. Father, we are grateful for your work on the cross that we were not left alone in the darkness, that our, that our dead hearts in our sin, God, that you, that you came for us, that you loved us enough to become the curse for us, that you were hanged on a tree so that I could live. God, I pray that we would be captured by that, pray, God, that it would not be hard for us or difficult for us or a burden for us to share the excitement we have of life in you. I pray that it would be natural for us to be quick with the gospel on our lips, to be quick with love in our hands and our feet. God, thank you for loving us well. Thank you for always loving us well. That it was never a time, even when you were giving the law to your people in Israel, God, you were not, you were still loving us well then. Today you are loving us well. For eternity you will love us well. You are the great treasure. God, we, we pray all these things in your name. Amen.